Welcome to The Secret Life of Dietitians. I'm Laura Poland. And I'm Amy Keller. We've been wanting to approach this topic for a while now, and frankly, I'm a little intimidated by it. I'm always a little intimidated by it, too. (laughs) National Eating Disorder Awareness Week is at the end of this month, the end of February, and this year's theme is Everybody Has a Seat at the Table. And you might not know that eating disorders can affect anyone of any age, any gender, any sexual orientation, any ability, any socioeconomic status. So we wanted to bring on an expert dietitian tonight to talk about eating disorders and maybe learn a few things that you can take away from this podcast tonight to maybe help spot an eating disorder, maybe help a friend, uh, or maybe recognize eating dis- you know um, eating behaviors that are of a concern to you. So that's what we're going to talk about tonight, and we appreciate uh, having our guest dietitian on with us. I'd like to welcome my friend and fellow dietitian, Erica Drury. And uh, Erica is a dietitian. I'll give you a little background first. And she began nutrition counseling to help her clients on a deeper level through understanding their relationship with food and how it impacts their minds and bodies. She founded her private practice and online community that's dedicated to this mission. Erica has earned Certified Eating Disorder Registered Dietitian, or CEDRD, through the International Association of Eating Disorder Professionals, or IAEDP, because, you know, we love acronyms here, right? (laughs) This rigorous uh, certificate ensures extensive educational and skill criteria, work experience, and commitment to stay abreast of current developments in the field. In practice, since 2009, she is also a certified intuitive eating counselor. She loves to connect and interact with her community on Instagram at Aligned Nutrition and her podcast, The Aligned Nutrition Podcast. Welcome, Erica. Thanks for having me, Amy and Laura. Sure. I'm so glad you guys are talking about this. I really appreciate it. It's super important. Well, I know we've talked a lot like in the past and and I love your specialty and I know I've struggled with some clients before and I've come to you for advice. I really appreciate your just knowledge and and breadth of knowledge on this topic and so I'm really excited to talk to you today and uh, do a deeper dive on this because I know I feel uncomfortable at times working with patients who obviously are struggling and... Uh, how do I help them best? As we started, I said I was have been very intimidated by this topic. I, I I enjoy reading about ways to treat disordered eating. By no way, as as long as I've been a dietitian, I mean I'm in no way comfortable treating eating disorders. And so, you know, this is a this is a specialty, and I would mm-hmm. be curious to know how this became your specialty and what drew you to it. Absolutely. And, you know, I think when you guys are talking about your level of discomfort with it, it's really a really just a lack of knowledge. Like in our traditional 
Um, when I think about what we learned in school or in mm-hmm. our internships on eating disorders, the medical nutrition therapy for eating disorders was one page. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it is, it's like this mystical, you know, mysterious kind of bucket that people fall into. And um, we can definitely break it down a bit further of like whether someone is maybe chronically dieting or disorder eating and eating disorder and what the difference between some of those things are. But for me, I began just treating everyone and seeing all types of conditions in private practice. And I, unbeknownst to myself, really you know, was kind of drawn and understood the specialty because of my own history of disordered eating. And it really just, I kind of took one to know one and I had really Mm -hmm. overcome and developed a solid relationship with food at that point. But I was just noticing over time that everyone, there was this kind of foundational, the psychology, the relationship to food, which was driving the, what they were eating and how much. And I had so many people in my office I feel like a, like a priest in a confessional, you know, people coming in and confessing their sins and, and just really worried about what they were eating. And so I really just kept kind of leaning into more and more of, you know, what is driving our eating patterns and behaviors. And over time, because of this comfort level and certification intuitive eating, I started getting more and more eating disorder referrals. And like you said, it's a specialty. And so I started seeking, um, you know, advanced certifications and doing, you know, professional conference trainings and things like that to really understand what are these kind of nuances and differences? What does medical nutrition therapy look like specifically for those suffering from eating disorders? Because it is this huge spectrum of like, okay, hey, I'm a little bit stressed about food or I've been trying these fad diets and, you know, to no avail or gosh, wow, I, you know, I skip meals a lot or I'm really either working out or I'm not, you know, sometimes I use certain behaviors and then to, you know, kind of moving into that full-blown clinical eating disorder and yeah just the more that I worked with these clients I just wanted to continue to learn more (laughs) I think your point of the spectrum is really important Mm -hmm. Um, and I love that you talk about you know that kind of that spectrum I'm a little stressed about food yeah all the way because I think when people think about eating disorders they think about that classic anorexia nervosa look and they also think maybe about a classic personality type or an age, you know, it's the teenage girl that's dissatisfied with her body, but maybe nothing could be further from the truth that that is not the classic typical. And I love the theme of, of Nita's week that this is, everybody has a seat at the table. Everyone can be affected by this. So I would be interested to know like how you see that spectrum and, and can somebody go from one end to the other? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It's, I think of it as kind of a like precancerous stage one, stage Mm -hmm. two, stage three, stage four. So where we're kind of like flipping it around of, it's not that someone's uh, issues with food are not valid until they're a full blown clinically definable eating disorder, but Hey, did we catch it? You know, when that 12 year old girl started dieting or when she became preoccupied with the size and shape of her body, or what about, you know, that person that lives in a quote unquote normal body and their doctor didn't even notice that they lost 30 pounds in one year, or, you know, everyone was kind of praising this person for these things. And it's true. A lot of people get missed because anybody of any shape and size can have an eating disorder and it can become really problematic to you know, not be diagnosed or be taken seriously or, you know, even yeah, praised for the behavior. Yes. Yeah. It's a perfect, perfect topic for this week. 
this is um this is something mm-hmm. that I see in in practice. There is such a focus on weight loss in our society. Yeah. There is such a focus on, as you mentioned, being praised for weight loss. And and one thing I try to point out, you know, even just in my social media, is that when you are praising weight loss, you could be praising an eating disorder. Yep. Right. Right. It's it's praising the food, and then I think it's also just the food shaming that goes on, or the this is uh, so many people, you know, that good bad dichotomy, and that's what a lot of people come to me and focus on is is this a good food or a bad food, and trying to get them out of that mentality because it's a dangerous place to stay. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's, I think of it as there's a lot of people who are kind of at risk for developing eating disorder or moving into disordered eating patterns. And, you know, so I think of what you guys are doing as this like preventative medicine in that way, you know, you're winding up with these people and you're saying, no, 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 no. Let me tell you a thing about a thing or two about food. It's not that this food is good and this food is bad, but let's talk more about the science and what that means for you specifically. So I think, you know, our field, I may specialize in treating eating disorders, but I think our field as a whole, especially as we learn more, or again, I appreciate you guys talking about this and bringing awareness to it, is really about eating disorder prevention. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I um, think we can get caught up, I think some dietitians too, in their specialty and in their focus maybe, or, and I've seen dietitians maybe go a little bit to that, you know, we have to keep that, conversation carefully scripted maybe about how we frame uh, our recommendations too it's hard yeah Yeah. what kind of you know if we talk to like parents and you say you know recognizing that that young girl who might be uh, and I've had parents approach me even just friends you know concerned about dieting daughters and Mm -hmm. even sons as well what kind of things can parents do to help kids through that? I know social media is part of it, but what kind of things do you recommend that parents can do? Oh, that's a great question. And um, I have so much respect for parents who are identifying those behaviors and trying to sort through them. And I think a lot of times what happens with little kids or the younger teens is their brains cannot think abstractly. And with nutrition being an abstract topic, a lot of times they might have learned in health class that, oh, you know, carbohydrates are bad for you or don't have any added sugar or they're hearing it as really Mm -hmm. defined and this is good and this is bad or I'm good and I'm bad for eating them and there's this like kind of morality that can be attached to it and so for parents it might be you know number one it's not just about the weight we're talking tonight about how everybody has a seat at the table and weight loss is not always an indicator of an eating disorder but i will say across the board if some child is falling off their growth chart for any reason that needs to be addressed whether the pediatrician is addressing it or the parents are noticing it that's always something to notice and really it's starting to think about how your child was eating before you notice things so if they're all of a sudden they're not hungry for snack after school or they don't want to eat potatoes at dinner or they're not hungry for breakfast kind of picking up on those little things that really seem off Mm -hmm. and addressing them 
And, you know, hey, why aren't you like this anymore? You used to eat spaghetti last week. What's going on? And and seeing if you can talk to your child about that. I think avoiding saying foods are good or bad or talking about your body or their body can be, again, kind of preventative um, Mm -hmm. or stopping something that's beginning. And then absolutely, if it's if it's continuing to get the treatment sooner than later, their brains change quickly. Earlier intervention is everything when it comes to eating disorders. Hmm. I think that with teens too, you can see not necessarily, you can see, start to see some of those behaviors. Like you mentioned, like, oh, I'm not eating spaghetti or I'm not eating potatoes. Mm-hmm. And maybe a parent or, or even a, you know, a child that maybe is a little bit in a, like in a larger body, a parent might think, oh, great. They're, they're getting healthy. Yep. Yeah. I think that's really tough. We're in a really tough society where parents are really worried about their kids being teased for their weight and mm-hmm. legitimately so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I wonder, you know, they might think, well, that's good that they're, they're watching what they eat. Um, I, I would be curious to your thoughts on, you know, if you have a child who's in a larger body, naturally, how do you deal with that? You're like, well, you know, they could lose some weight, but, you, you know, it, it's, it's or if you have a physician who's pushing them to lose weight, even, even worse. Yeah, a physician could be pushing them to lose weight. Absolutely. I think of it as a like a medication, you know, what are the, what are the potential benefits and what are the potential side effects? And some of the things that we know are for, you know, teens who are dieting, if they're severely dieting, skipping meals, really restricting food intake, they have an 18 times more likely chance of developing an eating disorder. And so it's this kind of idea of, hey, this is a really slippery slope. And do we really want to, you know, uh, have this type of treatment, especially when kids are growing because they're, you know, number one, are they following their growth charts? So Mm -hmm. if they've always been in the 95 percentile for weight and height, you know, do we really need to treat that or are they following their curve? Um, Or are there you know, what are their, what are their health behaviors like? I always try to like kind of take the focus off of weight and like, Mm -hmm. is your child, you know, are they active? Are they, you know, trying all the vegetables at dinner? Are they snacking appropriately? Are they eating lunch at school? Are they eating a well-balanced breakfast and trying to focus more on that than their weight per se? And I think it's tricky with the the bullying or being teased. It's, It's definitely, you know, parents are navigating something that really is a societal issue that needs to change. And so how do you develop your child's resilience to that? Whether it's saying things like, people come in all shapes and sizes. There's no one white, right way to have a body or have, has anyone used the, the word fat to you and how did they mean that? Was it an insult? And let's talk about that and just really getting that dialogue going for them. I totally agree with that. I think what you were saying about just the fact that it's just such a pervasive thing in our society these days that I wonder if, and and you don't have to have the answer to this, but just like, I feel like I'm seeing just a bigger, bigger incidence of disordered eating, you know, not necessarily like you mentioned the different stages, but you know, that disordered eating is, I worry because I see more people, you know, adults who are taking on some of these uh, stereotypes and, and, 
you know, carbohydrates are bad. I hear that so much. Uh, or dairy is bad. And then they have kids. And I worry about the kids, you know, nutrition status, because you're they're looking up to these people, and they're getting fed bad information. And so I feel like it's a vicious cycle that we could be just spawning more and more disordered eating if we don't watch it. And that's in recent years, eating disorders have greatly increased, greatly. Mm. There was a review of 94 studies. And of those, let me go back to the statistics here really quick. I believe it went from three and a half percent up to seven, eight, seven point eight percent in the past few years. Um, And we think that it really is part of the overall diet. We call it kind of like all-encompassing diet culture. Yeah, We're kind of living in this dialogue where we're fed this information. And, you know, as health professionals, yeah, we're encountering people are like, wait a minute, we don't, you know, we don't think of food that way. And here's, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of what it looks like. Yeah, I'm I'm sorry, I'm almost positive it's 3.5% and now we're at 7.8%, but it's essentially like wow. double, double, triple yeah. incidence of eating disorders from, you know, the 80s up until mm. recently, which is crazy. Yeah. I got, and it's been I exponential. Got, yeah. I got to think social media plays a role here. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. When you look at eating disorders, they're called like biopsychosocial. So there's this biological component like genetics. This is where the dieting piece comes in. We think something about being in a negative energy balance as something that can kind of flip on an eating disorder in someone. There's that, you know, is there any co-occurring symptoms like anxiety or obsessive compulsive disorder, ADHD, you know, what trauma, what are some things that might lead someone to be vulnerable? Then there's the social, the environmental, the social media, the comparison, and all of these are kind of like the environment that we live in. It's like this special combination of somebody that might go on to develop an eating disorder, but there's so many, like we've already talked about, so many people just living in this Mm -hmm. culture with, oh, you know, maybe I don't meet criteria for that, but, you know, I'm I'm dieting or I'm over-exercising or I'm compulsively overeating, you know, in, in secret or whatever. Yeah. I wonder about also, we talk about teens and even young people. Uh, I'll give you, I once had a, um, a, a, like a gymnastics mom approach me to come and talk to her daughter's gymnastics team about nutrition. It was like a, like not like a YMCA team, but maybe like a level above that. And I said, absolutely not. Absolutely not. I'm not going to do that because I can come and and certainly we can talk about healthy eating and all of that kind of stuff. And half the room will be fine with it. And the other half could develop an eating disorder after I leave. I refuse to do it. And I just, I didn't want to be responsible for that. To think about, you know, maybe, maybe everyone in the room will be fine with it, but I would never know that for sure. What do you talk to like parents of, of kids in these body conscious sports like gymnastics or you know weight sports like wrestling or things like that? How do you how do you handle that? Yeah, it's twofold. It's definitely a sports nutrition, like what you could have offered them of hey, here's what your body needs to fuel for your sport. Right. 
And then there's this other kind of social normalization of food where, hey, did you know that if you aren't hungry, but your friend has cookies at her house that you can have one? And that that's okay. And, you know, what does that look like? Or did you know that you're more than just your body or that, you know, not everybody can change the shape and size of their body as dramatically as we're told that we can. And so for them, it might be focusing on their performance and their self-worth as as kids or athletes and, you know, to kind of try to keep those things separate. Because I think you're hitting on something important, especially with like little, like the younger kids is nutrition information can be a weapon or a tool and it's like hey you know how are they going to hear this information do they really need to to know that or is it something that is going to be misconstrued mm-hmm. yeah i was really paranoid about it because again i thought you know people in the room again might take it well and somebody might run with that and two years you know, from down the road, say, I heard this dietitian came and talked to us, and that was the day my life changed. And I, I just didn't want to be responsible for that. It didn't feel like without, especially without parental involvement, that it was a good idea for a rando dietitian to walk in and talk to this team. Well, that's interesting that you say that. <laughs> that's yeah. kind of scary. I'm like, hmm. I know I've right. talked to my son's, you know, cross country team once, and now you've got me worried. I don't know, but I any mean, it's how you present it. But I, I was just, I, right. I just thought nothing. You know, maybe something positive can come of this, but I worried I could cause a big problem for somebody. Yeah. 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 Um, well, and both of you talking to both of you tonight too, and I. Again, I think your level of awareness around this probably makes you just super awesome at how you're presenting information. It's like this, uh, I always try to think of it when you're providing nutrition education to people. I mean, I guess really anybody could be at risk, right? But is really coming from an additive versus like reductive lens when possible. So, you know, did you know that you need more of this or (laughs) let's try and have that rather than don't have that or don't eat that. And so then that way it doesn't feel as restrictive to those who might be more vulnerable, which I guessing that you do also. I I have to say, I mean, I, I am hyper I am hyper vigilant about that in my practice. I always start with what's missing from someone's diet rather than what they expect me to say, which is you can't have this and this and this. <laughs> I never go there. I so much so sometimes I think they must think that anything I mean and it's true anything can fit in a healthy diet. I truly believe that. And so that's kind of something that I struggle with sometimes because I I wonder if sometimes I'm overcompensating because I really do feel like I'm seeing that more and more and more and I'm fighting it all the time that negative approach to diet instead of a positive what what should we be adding yeah As dietitians, there are some screening criteria that we can use. They're not in an, an eating disorder would be diagnosed by a mental health clinician, but there are some things that we can kind of evaluate, like the Eat 26 questionnaire is one. The SCOF uh, questions is another one to think about where you're just kind of doing like a quickie assessment on, you know, whether somebody you know might be at risk and you're you're kind of looking for some of those things as well. 
Hmm. Interesting. In terms of that sort of typical look or, or person that could suffer from an eating disorder, I think eating disorders in men is highly under-discussed. And I think about now, especially men in social media of like bodybuilding pages and, you know, Men's Health magazine and, and those types of things. What do you see as a clinician with that? Yes, I, at any given time, probably 10% of the clients that I'm working with are males. And it's one of those that I think is greatly underreported and unrecognized. And it, it, it can look different, whether it's that, yeah, kind of a muscular physique, or there's still, you know, no one is getting out without being susceptible to some sort of body image ideal. And I think with men, the hardest thing for them a lot of times is not having that community, that support, perhaps the identification of what they're dealing with. But then I think, yeah, later on, even if they're entering treatment, you know, does somebody understand, you know, what their unique needs are, which, you know, really it's, it's thinking about the type of issues that they're dealing with, whether it's based on that different ideal or not, you know, and really getting their energy needs to be enough as well. I think it's, I think it's hugely under, underdiagnosed. Yeah. And if you think about, you know, I mean, even I've seen statistics on and men with, you know, other mental health disorders, struggling from eating disorders. Can you speak to just even that co-occurrence of other mental health disorders. I know it, it works. I've seen a lot of statistics on like binge eating disorder and mental health disorders, but what other kinds of mental health disorders do you see in patients? Yeah, there's a really high correlation and incidence of co-occurring disorders and eating disorders. So anxiety is a huge one. History of trauma is a huge one. Depression is a big one. ADD, obsessive compulsive disorder is a big one. And what it happens with eating disorders, what you end up needing to really look at when you're differentiating, and again, this would be done by a mental health professional, but you're looking at that differentiation of if, if they're just anxious around food or they just have obsessive rituals around food, that is all tied to the eating disorder. But if they're doing things outside of food, in addition to food, body, and exercise, then it's absolutely co-occurring. And I always think of it as this kind of perfect storm, this perfect development of these things kind of coming together. So maybe it's somebody who, you know, had a history of trauma, they have, you know, severe anxiety, and they end up going on a diet with their friend in high school or they start lifting weights and eating protein powder and not eating enough food or whatever, that's going to triple fold, you know, lead them into to a really uh, negative place. Is it the same with substance abuse? I have mm-hmm. read about kind of co-occurrences with alcohol abuse, which you would think would be weird because alcohol has a lot of calories. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But so, you know, what kind of links do you see between that or, or even drug abuse? Yeah, it's usually it's similar with the co-occurring mental disorders where you kind of need to pull away the drugs first. So somebody might be using cocaine or another type of drug 
but they're really the real issue is you know suppressing the appetite having energy because their body's running on nothing or you know having uh engaging in excessive exercise or maybe it's alcohol but also mixed with this like binge you know eating pattern or the depression that's a, you know come from the alcohol and then mm-hmm. it's leading into binge eating or bulimic behaviors or things like that so it's kind of like pulling away that substance abuse is often a huge first step it's not uncommon for somebody to kind of go from substance abuse treatment right into eating disorder treatment and kind of kind of figuring those out as well and then reversing any you know physical complications from that yeah i know that eating disorder treatment takes a long time and so can you kind of just kind of go through because i'm sure it's there's sometimes that one step forward two steps back type of thing can you kind of give me a little bit of an idea of like what a registered dietitian would do? I mean, I love that your focus is on intuitive eating, but do you start there or do you do you start with more structure? Kind of give us like a little bit of a rundown of how that works. Yeah, yeah. There's um, there's actually a lot of signs of readiness for intuitive eating. So most people with eating disorders, like the eating disorder itself or anxiety or depression or a co-occurring disorder, mental disorder of some kind can actually be a barrier to intuitive eating being available to someone. So a lot of times when I'm working with somebody, it's really about first and foremost, making sure they're eating enough and then kind of bringing in more like food exposures. Are they starting to eat a certain variety of things? Um, Are they eating foods that they have anxiety about? All while kind of supporting that foundation of eating enough. And then you're kind of moving into more you know, kind of moderate place where maybe some more confidence is developing. They're sort of getting used to what it feels like to eat more. They've been working through timing, understanding the difference of a meal and snack, you know, learning how to prepare meals for themselves regularly. There's this whole kind of hierarchy where all these basics sort of need to be in place. We need to cool the flames of the anxiety and the way that their brain has been responding. There's a really strong like neurobiological component of when their brain is hijacked into an eating disorder. Then once all of that is a good foundation, when somebody's able to start to access hunger or start to trust fullness, or they have a bit more neutral foundation with food so they can you know, get in front of this idea of starting to seek more satisfaction or challenge some more of their food thoughts because a lot of that has been reversed. Yeah, I think that's a huge misconception and, you know, where intuitive eating is more of kind of like an end game for eating disorders, but not for everybody. There's actually no formal definition of recovery from an eating disorder. So for some people, intuitive eating may never feel available to them. And we can say, hey, they've had a remission of symptoms. They're not engaging in eating disorder patterns. They still follow a fairly structured plan, but we can say, hey, you know, for them, they're they're feeling recovered. And for other people, intuitive eating is everything that they're working towards. And that's the whole reason for them to seek recovery in the first place. What kind of things can throw somebody into a relapse? A lot of life transitions 
can be a huge susceptible time, um, whether that's a breakup or going from high school to college or going from college to working your first job or having a really busy internship or having kids, having a family, moving across the country, dealing with a insignificant amount of stress or something that, you know, really kind of pushes them to a place where the skill set that they had was totally challenged. Yeah. We and we know that insurance coverage for nutrition is terrible already. Yeah. Is it is it as bad in the eating disorder community as it used to be, or is, has there been any improvement in coverage for this type of service? There's been some slight improvements. The you know how we're talking about everybody at the table. There's still a lot of bias around weight. In treatment, so if somebody is, you know, receiving treatment, that treatment might be not eligible to them if they're not, you know, in an underweight quote unquote mm-hmm. category or fitting some sort of narrow criteria. Insurance doesn't see it the same way I was describing it or how we were talking about it. Of hey, we really were all about prevention here. If somebody's showing signs, mm-hmm. let's get them treatment right away so it doesn't progress. It's more coming from this. Okay, until something's definable and diagnosable, then then we'll then we'll provide treatment yeah. coverage. Um, and then there's, you know, inpatient treatment and outpatient treatment. I know there's partial hospitalization. I'm assuming that's still a thing. Yeah. You know, I, I think that all feels very intimidating um, to to think about if you're a parent thinking about your child going in a direction like that. Yeah. You what if you had two pieces of advice to give to parents to say these are the two things you could do to keep your child on a body positive path or you know some way to turn them around if you start to hear those language can you kind of give maybe just a couple pieces of advice that would be helpful yeah oh absolutely i think the first one would be around that kind of resilience that we were chatting about before of really teaching kids and i'm thinking about the gymnasts and you know working through your as a child that your body is for you to live in. You're not just your body. Like your body isn't something to be looked at. It isn't something that's just here for, you know, the the external appearance, but that that we are important and that we matter and that that's that's all that matters when it comes to our bodies. And then I think you know, the second piece would be surrounding food of, hey, there are no good or bad foods. You are allowed to eat all foods. And as a parent, you end up providing some structure, right? Like, hey, you know, here's some snacks I bought for after school or, you know what, it's time for dinner. So let's go ahead and and not have a snack now and we're going to have dinner in an hour. Or, you know, I really don't want you not eating lunch and you know you need to make sure that you're able to do that and just kind of promoting that you know as parent like you decide like what your kids are eating when they're deciding if they are and how much Mm -hmm. and kind of those divisions there it doesn't stop yeah after they're a toddler that doesn't stop like we because we talk about that with we've talked about that before on the podcast with the little ones but yeah that continues really that's interesting good I love that approach, and I think that's a great way to end yeah. this topic. Yeah. 
And I, I think we could talk to Erica for a long time. I could do this all day. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so um, we might have to have her back someday, but <laughs> I would love more. I would actually like to take a deeper dive into intuitive eating. We've talked a little mm-hmm. bit about it. I'm a yeah. huge proponent of intuitive eating. I just think yeah, intuitive eating counselor is on my bucket list of things <laughs> I would like to do uh, when I grow up. Um, <laughs> but I think I would like to take a deeper dive into that in a future podcast. But it is National Eating Disorders Awareness Week when this uh, podcast will air. If yep. you are interested in reading more about eating disorders, you can visit the National Eating Disorders website, and we are going to include a link to the Awareness Week materials, uh, including some really good infographics. There's about mm-hmm. eight of them that go through all different types of, of topics that we've talked tonight, from weight shaming and bullying to trauma to substance abuse. And then, of course, if you think that you need help or if you have a family member or a loved one who needs help, the National Image Disorders Awareness website is a wealth of materials, including a hotline that you can utilize. So I encourage you to visit that and we'll put that in our show notes. As well as Erica's website and information on her podcast and everything. Uh, So thank you so much, Erica. Did you... Absolutely. And that's, Nita, you know how you were asking about like the gymnasts and, you know, parents and stuff. And as an expanded version, I could talk to you guys too about this all night. They have guides for what, how to talk to your kid about weight, or if you're a coach, how do you talk to team, you know, team about nutrition or address a potential eating disorder. So they're amazing. They have everything that you need. Perfect. That's great. Okay. Well, Thank you so much for listening. And uh, as always, we appreciate your feedback. If you get a chance to give us a rating and let us know how we're doing, we really appreciate that. If you have more show ideas, you can visit our website at www.secretliferd.com. And you can also visit us on Instagram at the Secret Life dietitians you can follow us on twitter but i never tweet so i don't know what to tell you about that at at t dietitians i'll do better i promise (laughs) every time yeah sure and we look forward to seeing you wherever you get your podcasts